For all the, the people that are new here, uh, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors of Seven Mile Road, and uh, I shepherd the flock in Malden. And I get to preach uh, today for you guys. And today we encounter the weightiest truth in all the world. The cross of Jesus Christ is before us. And I get to preach the cross, and we have been for years now anticipating this moment where Jesus is crucified on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the central reality and truth of the Christian faith. You get this right, you have eternal life. You get this wrong, you are eternal trouble. The cross of Jesus Christ is not without controversy, heresy, and worst of all, apathy. Controversy has surrounded the cross as as liberal scholars have looked at it and said, God the Father is watching his son condemned bloody, bloody on the cross and leaving him to die. And they call it, they call Jesus' crucifixion divine child abuse. There's heresy that surrounds the cross as, as for centuries, religions have always proposed that Jesus never really died on that cross. That it was another man in place of him that died on that cross. And worst of all, apathy. Right? In our day, apathy with the cross. We look at the cross and we see it as a logo of the Christian faith or a symbol or a political uh, sign. And we don't get to encounter the historical reality that Jesus, the Christ, from Nazareth, died on a hill right outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That that actually happened. And for what reason? History has made it super clear that the cross is foolishness to all those who are perishing. So today, as we encounter the person and work of Jesus Christ, found at the cross, I pray that you don't fall into heresy, controversy, and worst of all, apathy. That today you would see the cross of Christ as it should be seen. A brutal murder, a brutal death on a tree. Please resist the temptation right now to just coast through another sermon, through another Sunday, to do your thing. Please, please, there's nothing more important that you need to hear today than that Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago. There's no other truth essential for the Christian faith other than seeing and believing that Jesus died on that cross. And for you that might not believe in Jesus, might not trust in him yet, there's no better place to meet him first than at the cross. Don't miss the cross of Christ this morning. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to unpack this passage that we just read. And what I want you guys to hear is that Jesus goes on a cross and he stays there. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that we get to sit in front of your word, that we get to sit under it, and today we come across the truth that you were crucified 
on a cross. God, I pray that you would renew our hearts and our understanding of the cross, that we would not approach it with apathy, controversy, or heresy. God, that we would love that you remained and withstood the suffering on the cross. Help us to believe that today. May your spirit work in power through your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you didn't know, it's tax-free holiday. Anyone taking advantage of that? Uh, Six and a quarter percent discount. If you didn't know, every other weekend of the year, they all, a lot of stores have 10 to 15 percent discounts, so you can also spend money out there. But it never seems to generate the same interest. I know because I went to the Mecca of Swedish exports, Ikea, yesterday. Caroline and I, uh, my wife, uh, planned about a couple weeks ago to go down there because we knew it was tax-free holiday. You know, we're, we got sucked into the six and a quarter percent discount. And uh, we went down there, and I have a love-hate relationship with this place. I love that I get to build my own furniture. I know it's crazy because I'm paying them for some wood, and I get to build it myself. Bit awesome business model. But I, I, I love it. I love it. I love doing that. I hate that I don't get to buy everything in that place, right? Because I, I love everything in there. So we're walking through this maze like all the other little hamsters, and we're, we're driving our cart, and Ezra throws out something from the cart, and he says, uh-oh. And Caroline and I both looked at each other. We're like, did this kid just say his very first words? And were his first words, uh-oh, really? And both of us were ecstatic, right? We just looked at him. We're like, say it again, uh-oh, uh-oh. And he kept saying back to us. And even this morning, we were, we were doing that. And both super ecstatic. And it dawned on me later that day that if uh-oh were his first words, then we're in trouble because he's probably going to make a lot of mistakes. But regardless, I love that kid. I love him. I love hanging out with him. I love just laughing with him. I love now talking with him. I love being his dad. And some of you guys, as parents, you guys know the exact feeling. There is some crazy thing that happens in you when you look at your kid and you just love them. You love them so much. There's nothing that rivals your love for your child in this world. You would do anything you can to shield them from harm. You would do anything you can if it's possible to give them what they need. That's the kind of fierce love parents have towards their children. But in a much more, much more profound way, what we're going to see that Jesus has this sort of love towards us. He has this sort of love that will shield his people from harm's way. He will do anything and overcome any obstacle and go to any lengths to see that his people are provided for, to ensure that they're shielded from the most harmful thing that is due to them, which is the wrath of God, the punishment due our sins. So we're going to unpack this. We're just going to go from verse 21. Read for us verse 21. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. 
the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross, and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skulls. There's no correlation to what the type of execution the cross was to Jesus and his people in that day. Nothing. In the U.S., in the name of, um, for, in the name of the Constitution forbidding, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, we have played down all forms of execution, even for the most guilty criminals, right? We used to have things like hanging and firing squads and electric chairs, but nowadays it's, it's solely given over to lethal injection, if we even get that far. What they would do is take, a, a, take a, the guilty prisoner to a room that's secluded, quiet, uh, without distractions. They would load up a, a needle with drugs. And what those drugs will do is when they're put into the arm of the prisoner, it would put them to sleep and then stop their heart. And they would die. And I tell you, it's the least painful and least violent way we could end somebody's life currently. But if we found a cheaper and faster and less harmful way to end another person's life, I'm sure we would vote that in. Today, executions are not public, as you guys know, right? When's the last time you saw a hanging? No. They're not witnessed by a lot of people. They're witnessed by a few people, family, uh, news media, prison guards, and you get to read about it if it happens in the paper the next day. So think about it. When's the last time you read about an execution in the globe? I looked it up. 1947. 1947. That was the last time, at least in Massachusetts, we heard about an execution. So no wonder Jesus' cross is so foreign to us. We have no context for what's going on in here. We have no context for what an execution looks like and what the Mark's contemporaries, as they read this gospel, what they felt. Crucifixion was a violent, violent and gruesome form of execution. It was the choice form of execution for Rome and for many other governments to come. It was a brutal way to strike fear into your people to never cross that line ever again. And people, as they witness these crucifixions happening in public, they would shudder at the sight of seeing a human being nailed to a beam, tied to a beam, hanging there. They would have nightmares about the screams coming from a beam in their public square as these prisoners were crying out for help, as they were literally fighting for every breath as the weight of their body was crushing their lungs as they were facing shock and cardiac arrest. And the smell, the smell as you would walk by these crosses, it would just ingrain these memories into your mind as you smelled the feces and the urine and the blood, the blood that was staining the ground underneath them. You just couldn't get it out of your mind. Jesus, in this point in the passage, had just come from the most brutal beating of his life. The Roman soldiers took him after he was convicted, took him and beat him. They literally beat the flesh off of his body. They took his bloodied body that was on, on the ground and they, they put a purple cloak on him, mocking him. 
And they took a thorny crown and shoved it into his skull so that the thorns made his head bleed. And Jesus laid there, being mocked by the Roman soldiers. As they kneeled before him and pretended to salute him as king and said, Hail the king of the Jews and just took on the physical suffering and the emotional suffering. After that beating, the Roman soldiers took off the cloak, kept the crown on, and said, Here, take this crossbar. It was customary then when a prisoner was executed, they would take the horizontal cross beam and give it to the prisoner so they can take it from the place that they were and take it out to their execution site. And that execution site was usually right outside the city gates and accustomed uh, to the Jewish law. Jesus was in such a weakened state, was so broken that he couldn't even carry that crossbeam that normally other people carried. And it says in Mark chapter 21 that Simon was coming out from the country and the Roman soldiers made him take Jesus' cross. Simon was probably coming in um, late to the Passover feast, to the celebrations, to the religious meals. And he was coming in from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. So it was a long journey, probably just, just got in there. And he was making it into the city gates as Jesus was making his way out of the city gates. And providentially, the Roman soldiers took him and made him take Jesus' cross and carry it to Golgotha. And immediately as you have been immersed in the gospel of Mark these past year, year and a half, you should be reminded of the passage where, Mark, or where Jesus calls his disciples to true discipleship. Mark 8, 3, 34. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So quite literally, Simon was the first to truly follow after Jesus by carrying that cross. Verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. You might have always heard that this was a customary sign um, of mercy that uh, they would do for the prisoners that were on a, a cross so that they can dull their pain, so they can go through the, the excruciating um, death in a less painful way. But that's, every time I've heard that, I just always felt that it was so out of place because it would be so out of character, especially in these Gospels, that these Roman soldiers who had just finished beating and mocking Jesus and would continue to do so after this would suddenly feel some mercy and decide to offer him some wine to dull the pain. I never understood it. It's because it wasn't a sign of mercy. It was an act of mockery. Jesus didn't get some woman to uh, give him some wine because he was feeling um, a lot of pain. The woman didn't have compassion and didn't mix this concoction of wine and myrrh because myrrh had some sedative power. There wasn't a person passing by that had compassion on Jesus and offered him wine. It was the Roman soldiers who offered it to him. And in the gospel of Luke, that gospel writer says this, that the soldiers mocked him by offering him this wine. Sort of like a drink laced with poison. It wasn't a sign of mercy. 
It was a sign of mockery. And the mockery here continues in verse 26. It says this, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now this one is extremely ironic. When executing someone, the Romans wanted the whole world to know exactly why this person was being executed, why he was being put to death. So what was Jesus' crime? Right? If you remember last week, Pastor Matt preached uh, about the, the trial before Pilate and the accusations that were before him. And what was that accusation? What was the conviction that they came down to? That this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. <clears throat> to Pilate in Rome... This was reason enough to kill somebody. This was reason enough to execute somebody because they didn't want anyone stepping on their political toes. If any man called himself king, that was reason enough to kill them. And to the Jewish rulers, this was blasphemy. For they believed that Jesus was not the true Messiah. The true Messiah, the king in the line of David, has not yet come in his coming. So they wanted to kill him. And there's this beautiful and really awkward exchange in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, where it talks about how this sign was created. John accounts that Pilate wrote on the sign, King of the Jews, plain and clear, King of the Jews. And when the chief priests read this sign, they said, no, 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 you can't do this. You can't. They begged Pilate, change the sign to read. This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And it'd be awesome if Pilate here would, was, was sent back to the chief priest and said, no, dude, that doesn't fit, so I can't do it. But he doesn't say that. What John says is, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So the sign that was above Jesus' head, declaring to the world why he was crucified, read, king of the Jews. Ironic, right? Too ironic. Almost like God ordained it from the beginning of time, ironic. Both Rome and the Jews wanted this man dead for the same charge. But written above his head was the title, King of the Jews. They meant it as an accusation. God ordained it as a declaration. Mark picks this up and picks up this, this um, language and declares that he's king even further, okay? He describes that there's two other people crucified next to him, two thieves, two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Where have you heard that language before? Sounds like throne, throne, king, language, right? In Mark chapter 10, James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need you to do one thing for us. We need you when you ascend your political throne, we need you to sit us on the right and sit us on the left. And Jesus rebukes them because they have no idea what they're asking for. So here at the cross, Mark understands this language and rightfully puts Jesus and says he's on his throne on the cross. The true Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King in the line of David, was there sitting on his throne on a cross. Not a, throw, not a political throne. Between two Thebes, one on his right and one on his left. 
For the sign of the coming king was not glory that he'd received by taking and ascending a political throne and sitting. The sign of the coming Messiah, the king in the line of David, was that he would suffer on a cross and die for the good of God's people. Verse 29, this is where it gets interesting. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who crucified with him were also reviled him. Crucifixions were always a public spectacle, right? It happened in the most public place so that as many people as possible can see what happened. There are accounts uh, in history where along the busiest roads in Rome, there would be thousands of crosses lined up and thousands of crucifixions happening in a single day so that all of Rome could see. This is the equivalent in our day of a cross being propped up right before Kenmore Station after a Red Sox-Yankees game. This is a cross being propped up right in the middle of that humongous Olympic stadium out there in London and televised for the world to see. Hundreds of thousands of people flocked in to Jerusalem. They were there for the feasts and sacrifices. They came from all over the world. We know this because Simon was from Cyrene, from North Africa, and made his way. So when Jesus was crucified, he was done so right outside the city gates on a hill so that a lot of people could see. And what Mark records here of the people that came across and saw Jesus, I want you guys to hear this. Mark records twice from two different parties the same refrain. They say, save yourself, come down from the cross. First, the crowds that passed by, they were passing by on, the, uh, on their way into the city or right, way out of the city as they were uh, celebrating uh, the feasts. They say to Jesus, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The crowds were angry, real angry, right? Mark uses some old school, Old Testament fight club language that we just don't understand in this day. He references Psalm 22. Mark says the crowds were wagging their heads. Somebody came up to you today and wagging their head. You wouldn't be scared of them. But in that day, they were scared because they knew that guy was angry, was furious. This is the biblical equivalent of the one-finger salute. Biblical equivalent of Garnet grinding his teeth and just breathing hard and heavily. They were mad. And we know why they're mad, right? Because this is the man that they've all heard who said that he he was going to destroy their temple. That's the equivalent of a Yankees fan coming up from the Bronx saying, I got money, I'm going to buy the Red Sox. And my first action as the owner of the Red Sox is to destroy Fenway Park and level it just because I want to. There's no room for that guy in the city, right? Absolutely no room. Amen? Mark says that these people were angry. 
And apparently this was a well-known, well-known controversy among the people. Because if you remember last week, there were testimonies brought before Pilate. And what was the, the single testimony that no one could get right? That he was the one that said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And why couldn't they get it right? Because Jesus never said this. He never said this. John chapter 2, early on in his ministry, Jesus cleansed the temple. And there John writes this. Jesus says, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up. John makes it clear. He says, you will destroy this temple, but I will raise it up in three days. And after all, he wasn't talking about that physical temple because when Jesus arrived on that scene, the physical temple is obsolete. He was talking about himself. So he looks at the religious rulers right in the face and says, you're going to destroy me, but I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. Jesus is talking about himself. Straight up tells the rulers, you're going to destroy me, but I'm going to resurrect in three days. And these rumors started to float around. And as you, as you guys know, rumors, as they go around, they get convoluted and they get mixed around. And he said, she said, and, and suddenly everyone's thinking that Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, talking about that physical temple, that place. They twisted Jesus' words. Now, the, the action word here for the crowds as they talk, it's probably um, translated in your Bibles as derided or hurled insults or or something along those lines. But the, the original word here is the same word for blaspheme. Blaspheme. And that's exactly what these passerbys were doing. They were accusing God of something false. And again, mark with the irony. Remember, Jesus was just convicted of blaspheming, saying he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. But here in this passage, these people who had just convicted him were really blaspheming, saying, you said this and accused him falsely. Second, the chief priests join in the mocking and say, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this uh, in the Gospels. We've heard this over and over again in the Gospels. There have been multiple places where Jesus has been confronted with the possibility of foregoing the cross. And each time, Jesus attributes it to the work of Satan. First time, before Jesus' adult ministry, when he was in the wilderness being tempted, he was tempted by Satan. And he was tempted to show off that he is the son of God by doing miracles so that everyone could see that he's the son of God without going to the cross. But Jesus rebukes Satan and leaves. Second, when Jesus reveals that he is going to be killed and, and murdered by the chief priests and scribes and the Jews, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And what does Jesus say to rebuke Peter back? He says, get behind me, Satan. And the third time in the Olive Garden, when Jesus uh, agonizes over the cross and the impending doom and death of the cross, he warns his disciples, not to fall into temptation and to pray. And what is the temptation 
that he warns them against. It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve felt in the garden, the original garden, which is to get glory now. So here, we have to imagine at the cross, the single act that can break or break Satan's work, that he is doing everything he can to get Jesus to come down from the cross, to forego the cross. Satan does this in two ways. One, he challenges Jesus' power to save. What does he say? You're the chief priest. He says, he saved others. He can't save himself. What are they doing? The religious leaders shed doubt on the authenticity, the validity of Jesus' work. Right? He healed a bunch of people. He exercised a bunch of demons. He raised people from the dead. Everything he did, they're challenging it. If Jesus can't even do it for himself, if he can't even save himself, how can we believe that he's done anything for other people? But the irony here is, again, for Jesus, coming down from the cross would be failure. And if he came down from the cross, he would not be able to save others. The only way he could save others is to remain on that cross. Jesus' interest was never to save himself. It was always to save others. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. He says, I, uh, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus stays on the cross. The second challenge, Satan challenges Jesus' Jesus's desire to save. What, they, what does he say? He says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. What the religious rulers are doing is, is taunting him and saying, we'll believe in you when we see you come down from the cross. They're saying, you want us to believe? Come down. How tempting would it be for Jesus at this moment to come down from the cross? His harshest critics for his whole life have been these very religious rulers who are now saying, guess what, Jesus, if you come down from the cross, I'm going to believe in you. They'd finally trust in Jesus. They'd finally see the way. How tempting would it be for Jesus to do that? Jesus knows that even though that temptation is there, there is no way that their belief will be accepted unless he remains on the cross and unless his sacrifice is made before God. There is no way their repentance and belief will be accepted except on the merit of Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. And even though he wants these religious rulers so much to believe, he weeps over them. He knows he has to stay on that cross or else it's not even possible. Jesus said earlier, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a man to gain the approval of his enemies? What does it profit a man to gain the uh, commendation of everyone that reviles him if he forfeits his soul? The main temptation here again is that Jesus would forgo the cross. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. There's another way. 
There's got to be some other way, some easier way. You don't have to go out like this. But Jesus has always maintained that suffering comes before glory. I will be last, and then I will be first. I will die, and then I will live. I will be buried, and then I will resurrect. Jesus, in this passage, rightfully reigns as king from his cross. But to those who are perishing, it is utter foolishness. Doesn't make sense. How could a king reign from a cross, the sign of execution? How could a king have power to save if he can't even save himself? Jesus turns this whole structure of the world upside down at this cross. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Ransoms only work if you give what you intend, what you told them you're going to pay. Ransoms don't work if you don't give them what you said you're going to pay. Jesus needed to remain on that cross, and he does. There was temptation along the way for him to come down and forgo the cross and forgo that suffering and go straight to glory. But there needed to be a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was equal enough to the horrendous offense that sin causes against the holy God. Jesus was that priceless sacrifice that pays for all sin. Jesus remains on the cross. Seven Mile Road, there are some real temptations that we all face in light of this passage. One, we face the temptation to blaspheme God. That's right, blaspheme God. Like the crowds, we can take God's words and twist it to suit our needs. And when our needs are not being met, we can blame God or thrust insults at him or accuse him for something that is false. Why didn't you come through for me, God? I thought you were on my side. I thought you were with me. The best example I can think of this is this tortured verse in Jeremiah 29. It says, I know, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, the plans to uh, give you peace and a future. That verse is not meant to make you a star. That verse is not intended to say that God is intending to make much of you. God doesn't intend to make much of anyone. God's will is to make much of himself. So don't twist that around and blame God because he didn't give you what you want. God will give you grace in seasons of great joy and honor and glory, but also very real and hard and tough seasons of suffering. God will give you grace. And his grace is himself. He is peace. He is prosperity. He is is security. He is your future. Don't take God's word and twist it around to meet your own needs. Don't blaspheme God. Take God's word at his word and worship him. Two, a very real temptation to skip hard for easy. Very, very real temptation. 
Jesus didn't say, I got this. Sit back, relax, enjoy the ride, and and see what I'm going to do. Jesus said things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Lose your life in order to save it. The call to follow Jesus is not an easy one. The call to follow Jesus has been easy for you. I would take a deep soul check and think about who you're following. Are you following Jesus? Following yourself? Following other things? Because a life that follows Jesus looks a lot different according to Scripture than the life that follows anything else. Jesus' life is marked by suffering that led to glory. And that informs our lives as suffering comes before glory. Seven Mile Road, God has been incredibly kind to you in the cross of Jesus the Christ. Incredibly kind. God turned the accusations against Jesus into declarations that we can say he is the king of the Jews. God turned the beatings that he endured from the Roman soldiers into eternal security and peace for you. God turned the Romans and what they used as a means for execution and death as a means for your life eternally. God turned what was foolishness to those who are perishing into the power of God to save God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He has been so kind to you. And ultimately, praise God that Jesus remains on that cross, that he doesn't fall from that cross, that he doesn't come down from that cross. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand God, our Father, glory. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we are amazed. We are amazed by what you've done on the cross. That this bloody and brutal sacrifice, this execution, this murder, was turned into what seemingly is foolishness to become the power for those who are being saved. That we can look to the cross now and see not a man that is dead, but worship a God that is alive. God, I pray that we would come to your cross today in worship and not in accusation, not in controversy, not in heresy, and definitely not in apathy. Help us to do that and in praising you, worshiping you on the cross. We love you. Name we pray.